Leviticus 16, starting at verse 7. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring them... Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of finely ground, fragrant incense, and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, He will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make the atonement in the most holy place until he comes out. Having made atonement for himself, his household and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement in the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed to the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the the man shall release it in the wilderness. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month you must deny yourselves and do no work. Whether native born or a foreigner residing among you because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed 
and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Would you join me in asking for God's help to understand this passage as I pray? Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have spoken to us through your word and we ask for your help now as Rowan speaks to us to explain this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I haven't met you before, uh, my name is Rowan Kemp. Uh, It's my privilege over these first couple of weeks, first four weeks leading up to Easter, the EU has kindly invited me in an act that either shows incredible faith, maybe in me, maybe in the one true living God, to, to speak from a very bizarre, difficult, strange, alien part of the Old Testament, this book of Leviticus. So four weeks we're going to sort of spend just trying to get our heads around the big framework of Leviticus, how this particular ancient Old Testament book sort of works, how it fits into the Christian scriptures. We're going to do that for sort of the first four weeks. Then after Easter, we're going to take a bit of a break, do some other things, some other speakers will come and talk, and then we'll come back to Leviticus sort of later in the semester and again next semester. And over the course of the year, we hope to get a bit of a a detailed sort of feel for not just what's in this book of Leviticus, but also how we should understand it from a Christian point of view, understanding the Lord Jesus Christ as, as God's ultimate final revelation to us. So that's why we had quite a long reading there, because I know Leviticus is not terribly well known. So each time we come, we're going to sort of spend a little bit of time reading parts of Leviticus, just so you at least got a little bit of an idea of what's in it. It would be super helpful if you can open up a copy of it. If you happen to have a Bible with you, or you there, you can go to BibleGateway.com. They do not pay me for those sort of mentions. You could go there and just call it up on your phone. You can have a look at that would be really helpful as we go along. Now, last week, as we started this sort of little journey through the book of Leviticus, I, we talked about a particular story. We talked about the story of Nadab and Abihu, which is there in Leviticus chapter 10. It's a very sorry story. It's a sad story. These two guys have the great privilege of, in God's Old Testament people, of being told by God, you, can, you get to be priests, right? That gave them a fairly exalted sort of position. But these guys got all a bit sort of taken away, I think, with that sort of idea of being God's priests. They all got a bit creative. And whereas God had said, as priests, this is what, how I want you to do your stuff, they decided, no, 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 now we'll just make up our own stuff. They made up their own stuff. And as Now, that's a feeling outcome for just being a little bit innovative you might think but it's actually because what they were doing was done in the very presence of the living God 
And I, what, I, what I sort of tried to point out, why we started with that sort of confronting story in the book of Leviticus is because I think that story reveals for us the question to which all of Leviticus is the answer. It's like one of those weird moments you say, the answer is 42. What's the question? Right? I'm saying the answer is the book of Leviticus. What's the question? Well, the question that I introduced last week, and I think is the question to which the whole Leviticus is the answer, is how can the one true God, the one God who really is, is real, the one true God, how can this God who reveals himself as holy, as pure, as set apart from everything else, who's, who, who is untouched by evil and wickedness, how can this one true God live in the middle of an unholy people? How can this God take up residence amongst an unholy people without, frankly, destroying them as tragically and sadly happened to Aaron's two sons? That's the big question to which Leviticus, I think, is, is the answer. Okay? So what I want to do this week is I want to try to show you, take you to the particular point in the book of Leviticus that I think answers this question. What is the centre point of the whole of the book? And I don't mean literally what's, you know, the middle page of the book. I mean, you've got to be more literary than that. What's the centre of it in terms of the way the whole book sort of is, is structured and the way the book is, is told? I think, and you're going to have to come back in a, maybe next week or the week after, whenever I decide to share it with you, um, I, have a, I have a particular reason for thinking that Leviticus chapter 16 is the centre point of the whole book. The whole book of Leviticus is actually structured around that chapter. Now, you'll have to come back in future weeks to sort of see if you agree with me or that as I sort of share my reasoning with you. But today I want us to look at this particular chapter of Leviticus 16 and see how it answers this big question. How can the holy God dwell amongst an unholy people? And just because, you know, I know it's sort of in the afternoon, I'll give you the answer straight up, okay, in case you're about to fall asleep now. The answer from Leviticus 16 is this. God comes to dwell amongst his unholy people. How does he do it? By making them holy. That's what he does. He resolves the problem by making his people holy. That is, by taking away their sins. By cleansing them. So that he can dwell in their midst. That's the short answer. Right, you ready to dive into the detail? If you've got Leviticus 16 there, we'll have a look at it. You'll notice that your Bible might have a heading there. It's called sometimes the Day of Atonement. Uh, just a little note, that word atonement, maybe you're familiar with that, maybe not. It's a very easy word to understand. It's one of those unusual words in the English language that was actually coined. This, this word atonement, this English word, was invented to capture the very... That is, it literally means at one meant. It was coined in English to capture that concept. How do you, how do you make, make peace? How do you bring two parties together? How do you reconcile two parties? And the, how do you bring at one meant? That's the concept of atonement. One brings together. So there's, here's this ritual in Leviticus 16 
the Day of Atonement. We just heard it read for us. You uh, hopefully caught some of the details of that particular uh, ritual. Basically, there were um, two particular goats involved. Two particular goats involved. One goat is sacrificed and its blood is distributed in the most holy place, the innermost sanctum of this tent of meeting where God symbolically dwelt with his people. The other goat is sent away alive into the desert, symbolically carrying the sins of all of the people on its sort of on its purse on its body, bring them out into the That's the heart of this ritual, right? These two goats. That together the two goats are described as a singular sin offering. Not two offerings, just one sin offering, these two goats. That's at the heart of the ritual. Now, before we dive into some of the detail, we know from the New Testament, right? We always have to read these Old Testament books. If you want to understand them from a Christian perspective, you have to read them in light of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything revealed about him in the New Testament. We know from the New Testament that that ritual involving these two goats, that ritual did not actually deal with people's sins. It didn't actually take away people's sins. We know that from the New Testament because if you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews is almost like a companion volume to Leviticus. When you read through the book of Hebrews, time and time again, if you know the book of Leviticus, you'll say, ah, this New Testament writer is actually talking about Leviticus but he's talking about Leviticus in light of what Jesus has done. So if you want to really understand Leviticus, the best thing I can suggest to you is read Hebrews. Second option, come to EU public meetings. But the best option would actually be to read Hebrews. That's going to really help you to understand the book of Leviticus. You need to read them together. In fact, I know one EU small group, just while we're plugging EU Bible study groups, as we did before, I know one uh, EU Bible study group that's actually decided they're going to read Leviticus while we're doing, sorry, read Hebrews while we do Leviticus in public meetings. That's not a bad idea, actually. Anyway, if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see in there, and I'll let me just uh, read out to you one particular part of it, from Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, we're told in verse 3, when the writer there is reflecting on the Day of Atonement ritual, on this ritual involving the two goats, this is what the writer says. He says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Very clear saying, when, when they went through that sacrifice of those animals year after year, it was impossible for that to actually deal with the problem of human sin. It couldn't actually remove the sin. But then he goes on in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 10 of the book of the Hebrews, and he says, but we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So those two goats were not able to deal with the problem of human sin, but in Jesus Christ, God did deal with the actual problem of human sin. So those goats, that Day of Atonement ritual carried out every year amongst the Old Testament Jewish people, it was meant to point forward, it was meant to shed some light onto the moment still to come for them when God would finally deal with the big problem of human sin. That would happen in Jesus Christ, at his death. Now, at that point, you go, right, I guess 
Leviticus 16, they're at the heart of the book of Leviticus. That's how it makes people holy, by dealing with their sin. We know that the answer comes in Jesus. We have now understood Leviticus pretty well. Time for afternoon tea. Shortest talk I've ever given. That's pretty good, isn't it? And we can walk ahead here going, well, praise God for what he has done in Jesus. He's dealt with a real problem of human sin. Tragically, uh, for you, maybe I'm not going to stop there. Um, tragically, <laughs> tragically, many Christians do stop there. Once that uh, part of the Old Testament, we sort of go, I understand how it's the big picture gets us all the way to Jesus. I now understand that. So I guess that's the end of the story. That's good. Praise God for that and we're off we go. I suggested last week, I think that is, is unfortunately not availing yourself of the richness of God's word that he's revealed in the Old Testament. Because what happens is when we read the details of Leviticus 16, it as a shadow forward to all different sort of aspects of what God does finally achieve in Jesus. I was trying to think of an analogy and this is pretty, probably not very good but it's the best I've come up with so far. It's like you're walking along and it's a sunny day, like today, a glorious day and there's a shadow on the ground in front of you. And you say, look, there's a big shadow. I can see that is the, the main clock tower of the quadrangle. If you're in here, you've never seen that but it's over there, right? And think you've you look at it and you go, look, there's the clock tower. I can see the shadow. The shadow is Leviticus, right? The reality, the reality is Jesus, right? Many people go, look, it's a clock tower. And that's enough. Off they go. I'm suggesting to you, if you look, the shadow is quite sharply drawn. You can identify different features of, from the shadow. If you turn around and look at Jesus, you go, oh... You're showing me that part of what Jesus has done. You're showing me that part of what Jesus has done. There is much richness to be had in Leviticus 16 for understanding what God ultimately did in Jesus at the cross. So what I want to do is just point out to you three or maybe five, depending on how we go for time, <laughs> three or maybe five features from Leviticus 16 that I think remind us of some really significant truths about what God has done ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. Right? So we'll see how we go. We'll do three and maybe I'll just mention the last two. We'll see. I'd love to have some time for questions. So we're going to power. Okay, here we go. First of all, first reflection is this. Grace has a shape. Grace has a shape. See, back in Leviticus, to enter God's presence was an incredible privilege. Sorry, that means... Is this annoying people up the back? I'm not going to shout. I can't, I can't shout. Sorry. I'm now restricted by this lectern. No worries. I'm going to try to embody the, own, the, myth, the very thing I was trying to say, which is grace. That's <laughs> a shape. Tell me.
Tell me if that's too loud up the back, okay, if it's buzzing. Um, so, to be able, in Leviticus, it's very clear that to be able to enter the presence of the living God is an incredible privilege, right? It's, a, it's, it's not something you ever deserve. It's a gift. It's technically a grace, an undeserved kindness from God that you're able to enter his presence. But it is also clear you can't just do it any old how. We saw this last week. And if you've got Leviticus 16 there, let me just show you. Leviticus 16 is tied in directly with that story about Aaron's sons we saw last week. Look how the chapter starts. You've got it in front of you, I hope, or maybe look on with somebody. Leviticus 16, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. That was what we saw from Leviticus 10. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So no one, not even Aaron, who was the high priest, hand chosen by God himself, not even Aaron can just wander into the presence of the living God. However, notice the next verse. This, is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. So God's not saying, look, I'm holy, you're not, so frankly, keep your distance and end of story. He's saying, no, because I'm holy and you are not, you can't just wander in any old way, but I want you to be able to enter my presence. So when Aaron is is to come, come like this. He provides a grace, but the grace has a shape, a particular way in which we appropriate grace. Now, I think actually that's something that we very easily forget, especially as those who live in Australia. Australia is a very egalitarian sort of country. We, we don't like anyone sort of thinking they're sort of more superior than anyone else. And I actually think that's affected how we think about God. We think we can just wander into God's presence any old way because, well, who's God, really? Uh, let me tell you a bit of a story. I don't know if you know this person. This person, a famous cricketer from probably the 80s, uh, Dennis Lilly. He was an Australian fast bowler. He was well known as a larrikin type figure. And there's a story that's told of when the Australian cricket team were on tour in the UK. The Queen of England invited them to come to Buckingham Palace to meet her. So the whole team gets dressed up, rock up to Buckingham Palace. Before the Queen comes in, the person who comes ahead of them is the protocol expert to tell the Australian cricket team how you are to survive in the presence of Her Majesty. (laughs) What you are to do is you are to keep your hands to yourself. Keep them by your side, behind your back. Do not speak unless you are spoken to. If she decides to, in her mercifulness, stop to speak to you in person, answer politely, yes, your majesty or ma'am. Or the whole sort of protocol. Anyway, protocol guy leaves, queen walks in, comes along, gets to Dennis Lilly and Dennis Lilly sticks out his hand and then says, G'day, how are you going? Now, in your heart, are you sort of going, ooh, or are you going, yeah? Because <laughs> frankly, deep down, I think if you really understand Australian culture, you go, yeah. 
because we don't think anyone really is any better than us. Like, she's just the queen. <laughs> and we, this is, this is, I would suggest to you, the great Aussie delusion. The great Aussie delusion is that God, he ain't much different from us. If I think I'm okay, surely he would think the same. This is the great Australian delusion that God would just be the same as me. God would, God would think I'm okay because, frankly, I think I'm okay. It's the great Aussie delusion. We, I think, don't learn the lesson of Aaron's two sons. You can't just wander into God's presence any old way. Grace has a shape. Now, what that means for us, I think, is that we need to remember we can only survive in the presence of the Holy God because of the way he has provided for us, ultimately through the atonement that he won for us in Jesus Christ. What is the appropriate way of, of, of taking hold of that grace? It's by trust, by faith, committing yourself as a follower of this Jesus and by reflecting actually on the details, the, the, the so many details of what they needed to do in Leviticus to enter into the presence of God, that's meant to make us stop and go, okay, I, I need to reflect humbly here. Have I taken hold of the means that God has provided so that I might live with his presence in my life? Have I put my trust, my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, let me encourage you to do so. It is naive, it's foolish, it's even arrogant to think that I'll be right with God, this holy God, without the means he's provided in his son Jesus. And if you haven't sort of explored Jesus as an adult for yourself, may I encourage you, commend to you the EU sort of Who is Jesus program running the next two Mondays or get on the website and have have a bit of a look to find out about that course. Uh, That would be a great way to just to start or or keep coming to EU public meetings or join one of our small group Bible studies. Okay, grace has a shape. Second reflection on Leviticus, that atonement has a cost. Now, you'll remember there were two goats, right, in this Day of Atonement ritual which together with this single sin offering, we know from earlier in the book of Leviticus, back in chapter 4, we're told a lot about sin offerings. We know that in particular, what normally happened was the person who was making the sin offering would put a hand on the goat, confess their sins over the goat and then the goat was sacrificed. Now, that's what was normally happening. Now, you just think about that. When you place your hand on the animal and confess your sins over the animal and then that animal dies, that's pretty clear, isn't it, in making a point that your atonement has a real cost. It's a symbolic identification. This animal died instead of you. It was your substitute. Atonement has a cost. And when it comes to the true atonement, that that was just the shadow of, namely what God wins for us in Jesus Christ and his death, I think we often forget that it's costly. If you're like me, we easily take our atonement in Jesus Christ for granted. So a couple of months ago, I read a news article uh, about something that happened end of last year. 
Uh, this particular woman was browsing through a flea market, sort of, you know, a junk market in Philadelphia. She came across a, a ball of twisted metal strips, entirely black. She looked at it. She, she decided she'd buy it, partly because she just liked the shape that this black metal sort of formed. She bought it. It cost her 200 bucks in a flea market, right? So she paid a lot of money for this metal ball. She took it home thinking, it's metal, maybe you can sort of polish it up or something. She started to polish it, realised, actually, it's, you can polish it up. It was silver, solid silver. So she took it to a silversmith who was able to polish it all up and this is a picture of it. This is what it turned out to look like. You think, oh, that's, pretty, that's a lot nicer than just straight black. But as after they polished it up, they were able to find on it some initials, two initials, UV. What does that mean? So she took it to a silver expert who said, oh, well, that's the initials of the silversmith who created this work of art. His name, well known apparently, Ubaldo Vitali. Never heard of him. Anyway, a famous American silversmith, one of the leaders of his trade. Consequently, she decided, oh, well, I'll send it to auction. Maybe this is a valuable piece. Of... So he, she paid 200 bucks for it, right? What was it sold for in November last year? $22,500. That is a profit, and commerce people are going to get excited at this point, that was a profit of 11,000%. <laughs> I'm no expert, I think that's a fairly good return. <laughs> now, this is the thing that struck me about the news article when I read it. Some bozo had this sitting in their house, getting, letting it get black and not realise this was incredibly precious. And I think that's sometimes how we treat the death of Jesus. Atonement had a cost, a profound cost, that the one true God in the person of his Son would bear my sin, your sin, our sin upon himself, pay the penalty for it so that you and I might be one with God. Atonement has a cost. Thirdly, sin has a destination. Sin has a destination. Now, the very unusual thing about the sin offering here in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 was that it involved two goats, not just one, right? One goat was sacrificed, but the other one was sent off into the wilderness. Now, the significance of that second goat, I think, is that it is a visual object lesson for what God was achieving via the first goat. Right? The first goat is sacrificed. Symbolically, the penalty for you is paid. The reason there's a second goat is to make that clear to you as you see your sins confessed over the goat and the goat sent off into the wilderness. Take literally removed from you. So as you're there in the camp with the God's presence symbolically there in the tent of meeting in the midst of the camp, you see your sins being led out of the camp on the head of the goat. Very clearly saying to you, your sins are no longer here. They've left the building, so to speak. Right? That is what the second goat was meant to communicate. 
Now, ultimately, we know that the real atonement is there in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here you get a reminder of just what God is achieving for us in the death of his son Jesus. Our sin has been utterly removed at the cross of Jesus. All of your sin, all of my sin has been dealt with at the cross of Jesus. Now look, I don't know what stuff there is in your life that you're not terribly proud of. There might be stuff in your past, maybe years and years ago, you go, I just, I just wish it had never happened. Stuff that maybe you have done, not as a victim but as a, a perpetrator, an agent. Maybe there's stuff even that's gone on this week that you think, I just really, I just know I should not do those things. But you've done them anyway. And if you call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you put your trust in him, then we know that there is no condemnation for us because all of our sin has been borne by our Saviour Jesus. But you know, even if you've done that, you still feel the guilt sometimes, don't you? It just lingers sometimes for years. Remember the second goat. Your sin has left the building. Your sin has, had, sin has a destination, friend, and it is a, completely out in the wilderness. It is not upon you. It has been taken away in the death of Jesus Christ for you. So when the evil one tries to bring you down by saying, yeah, like if they really knew what you've done, how can God really accept you? Don't listen to him. Because if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, know that he has taken not just your penalty, but he has taken your guilt. Sin has a destination. It has been utterly removed. And I think there's a great reason to rejoice. Okay, now I could go on. There's another two things I could say. I'm just going to give you what they are and you can look them up later. If you go to the end of chapter 16... You can actually see there that forgiveness, I think, has a priority. One of the things you learn from Leviticus is that on the Day of Atonement each year they were to do no work. They were just to receive forgiveness. It was those saying, stop what you're doing, pens down, pay attention, I am, I am wiping your sin clean. You got it? Forgiveness has a priority in their life. And that's probably worth reflecting on. The second thing I think you learned, uh, the, the fifth thing ultimately, is that recidivists or reoffenders have a remedy. The other thing you notice from the end of the chapter is that they were just to do this ritual every year. And even when Aaron the high priest died, his son was to keep going. It was to be done every single year. Clearly saying to God's people, no matter how often you sin, no matter what your sins, I will provide for you every year to wipe your sins clean. And when you get to the book of Hebrews, reflecting on that, and we're going to explore this more next week, it says, but now God has done it, not an annual sacrifice, a reminder of sin, but now God has dealt once for all, one sacrifice for all people, for all time, in the death of his son Jesus. So recidivists like you and me, people who do continue to re-offend against God, we have a remedy ultimately in the death of Christ. I praise him for that.